Good evening, this is Quintus Curtius, and welcome back to the podcast. It's been about 10 days since my last podcast. I was on a trip earlier, a few weeks ago, so it wasn't easy for me really to pick up the mic. So I'm back here in the saddle and uh, able to put something out here for you again. What I want to talk about in this podcast is a, um, a conflict in the 20th, 20th century that's not very well known. This is the Russian Civil War of 1917 to 1922. And um, the reason why I wanted to talk about it was it came up as a subject in this biography that I've been reading about uh, Joseph Stalin. I think I've recommended it before. It's called Stalin, and the author's name is Stephen Kotkin. Kotkin. And uh, in the book, it talks a little bit about the the, uh, Bolshevik seizure of power in Russia in 1917 and how they had to hold on in the face of uh, civil war and external attacks. And I thought it would be worth talking about this conflict because it's not very well known in the West. Not very well known at all. And when you really read about the history of Russia in the 20th century, you really come to realize it just how much that the history of this country was just one unbroken string of disaster, one after the other. I mean, Russia in the 20th century endured some just horrific shocks. I mean, think about it. You, there was a revolution in 1905. The Russians were defeated militarily by Japan in the same year. And then World War One followed in 1914. And then that ended in disaster. Then the Bolsheviks took over. And then civil war erupted and lasted until... 1922 and killed millions, millions of Russians. And then you had the forcible imposition of communism on all of Russia, and that resulted in even more millions of deaths, starvations, forced collectivizations, deaths. And then you had the outbreak of World War II with all of that consequent carnage that happened in the wake of that with the German invasion. So, you know, it's amazing that Russia is still standing. It's amazing in many ways that it still exists as a political entity. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find any country, maybe except China, that's endured such horrific carnage in the 20th century and still is standing. And I don't think we really appreciate this as much as we should in the United States. I think there's a tendency in America just to completely gloss over these things, if, if anyone even acknowledges them in the first place. But... Americans are just very, very fortunate. Unlike Europeans, they've never had any major wars in the modern era fought on their land. They just don't understand. They don't know what it's like to be deprived of freedom, of food, of security, and of lives. And I just think that's just so very important uh, a fact to remember in, understand, in understanding the, the, uh, the American consciousness. It's really one of profound ignorance, profound Uh, lack of understanding of really what suffering is all about. And, you know, that in some ways that's a blessing and in some ways it's, it's not a blessing. It's a blessing in the sense that no one wants to have disaster visited on one's homeland. But on the other hand, there's a sense that people are just way too complacent. People are just way too spoiled here. They just don't understand what's important in life. And they don't understand how to distinguish what's important from what is not important.
In any case, let's return to the topic here. Otherwise, we'll just never get off the ground. I want to talk about the Russian Civil War. And in particular, I want to talk about why the Reds won and the Whites lost. Now, when I use the terms Reds and Whites, what I mean is that the the belligerent forces in the Russian Civil War of 1917 to 1922 were primarily composed of two sides. On one side was the Reds, that was the Bolshevik communists who were in power. And opposing them were a group called the Whites, uh, White Russians. And this is a a term kind of used in in an umbrella sense to cover all of the groups that were opposed to Bolshevism. They comprised comprised monarchists, nationalists, um, populists, uh, reactionaries, uh, religious types of uh, groupings, all uh, all types of of, uh, of groupings that were in opposition to the communist regime. There were also small numbers of, of greens, what the historians call greens, um, but these were not really military militarily significant. Uh, these were greens were basically rival socialists uh, of various different stripes. Uh, you know, social revolutionaries and whatnot, but those really aren't relevant for our discussion here. And everyone knows that the war ended with the victory of the Reds, but the question, and, and it ended in a very dramatic way, or it started to end, one of the major white Russian commanders, a guy named Kolchak, uh, was taken prisoner in Irkutsk, eastern Siberia, and he was shot by firing squad on February 7th, 1920, and his body was just kicked uh, down a hole uh, cut in the frozen um, Ushakovka River, which was a tributary of the uh, Angara River, basically in the middle of nowhere. A guy was shot and dumped in a river, a very ignominious end to someone who probably had, uh, you know, noble aspirations, someone who probably wanted the best for his country and was not uh, able to achieve that. But how how could this have happened? I mean, knowing what we know now about communism, how is it possible? How is it possible that a group of radicals, extreme radicals, were able to take over an entire country like this and impose their will on it? And, you know, in the modern era, we can see how this can happen. I mean, we look at the Middle East and we look at the areas of control under the uh, Islamic State, ISIS, and we say to ourselves, how, how is it possible that a regime so obviously depraved, so obviously criminal, can appeal to the masses? How can this happen? Well, it can happen when there is a void. It can happen when there is a lack of institutions, when there is a collapse of institutions, and when nothing rushes to fill the void except opportunistic adventurers and people who are ruthless and brutal and are willing to impose their control with the bullet and the bayonet. And this is how it happens. So, you know, how did the Reds win? Well, it's not necessarily their impressive military strategy, nor was it their, their intelligence uh, victories. Although intelligence did matter, the, Red, the Reds did have a very, very impressive home front, um, you know, secret police, and they were very effective at um, at using uh, security to bolster their regime. I, but those aren't the primary reasons. I think the first reason is just geography. If you look at 
the geography of the Civil War. The Reds controlled the heartland. They had Moscow, they had Petrograd, uh, St. Petersburg. They had the major urban centers in uh, in um, you know Western Russia, and they only had to hold on. They only had to hold on. The Whites were primarily on the periphery. They were out there on the periphery, and they had to attack. They had to conquer the areas controlled by the Reds. And the Reds controlled a lot of the major urban centers, the uh, centers of railway junctions, the key roads, the uh, factories, the the major centers of population. A lot of the resources were in the Red-controlled areas. So right from the beginning, the Whites were starting from a geographic and strategic disadvantage. And it really would have taken inspired generalship on the part of the whites to overcome this kind of deficiency, which really did not exist. You know, as I said, railroad junctions, depots, barracks, and the whole central administrative core of the old uh, czarist army were all located in the um, in the Red Heartland. The second reason, I think, for the, the Red victory was the people stayed on their side. The population in, in the Red-controlled areas did not rise up. They did not resist. And I think a lot of this was due to ignorance. Remember, in those days, people did not have the benefit of hindsight. No one really knew what the communists were all about. No one really understood what Bolshevism was. People probably thought of it as a more or less a progressive kind of um, you know, a, a, a solution to the problems of the modern world. You know, you have to remember, Russia under Tsarism had totally collapsed. The First World War and the German occupation of the First World War had totally uh, resulted in civil collapse in Russia. And there really was nothing to fill the void. And you had these opportunistic revolutionaries who were willing to do that. And the people just didn't know any better. There was just not a lot of... of uh, uh, informed, educated population. You had a peasantry, you had factory workers, you had uh, proletariats. They didn't know any better. And they were easily seduced by agitators, provocateurs like the Bolsheviks into following uh, communism. And it must be said there was, uh, as a third factor, there was inspired leadership, I think, in some ways by the Bolsheviks. Uh, Lenin himself never visited the front. He never was or tried to pretend to be a military commander. He left that to others like Trotsky. But he was a symbol of the new order. He didn't really interfere in the decisions of his uh, military commanders. He was good at agitating. He was good at speech making. And he talked a good game. He was a good talker. Let's face it, for lack of a better word, Lenin talked a great game. Nobody really knew what sort of a son of a bitch he was until it was too late. No one really understood just how uh, bad this guy was and just how radical he was until it really was too late. Now, arrayed against this, opposed to all this, are the egregious failings, military and political failings of the whites. So we can see in many ways that it wasn't so much that the Reds won the war, but it was more that the whites lost it. The whites managed the war ineptly, incompetently, and were unable to adapt to the political and social circumstances that the situation demanded. They were unable to rise to the challenge of winning the Civil War. And how did that happen, or why did that happen? 
Well, basically, for many of the same reasons that the forces of Chiang Kai-shek in China in the 1940s and 50s were unable to win against uh, the, uh, the, the communist guerrillas of Mao Zedong because they were corrupt. They never rose above the level of warlordism. They never rose above the level of feudalists, feudalist mercenary armies. They were unable to capture the imagination of the population. They just couldn't do it. And basically Kolchak formed his areas under his control as kind of a, a military dictatorship. He really showed no sensitivity to the situation. He tried to reestablish old czarist laws. He tried to return confiscated land and property to their rightful owners. He basically behaved and a lot of the other white generals basically behaved, or tried to behave, as if nothing had happened, nothing had changed in Russia in the past 20 years. And the problem was he never really understood, the whites never really grasped that there was no going back to the old order. The First World War had, it had irrevocably changed the landscape for the worst. And there, was, there would be no going back to the old order of things. And this is the type of political observation that the whites never seemed to wrap their minds around. And this was compounded, I think, as a fifth factor. This was compounded by a complete failure in the realm of ideas. And when I say ideas, I mean propaganda. I mean getting the message out to the people. The whites totally failed in capturing the minds of the people. One of their political slogans was, was this, let us be one Russian people. That was their slogan. Let us be one Russian people. Well, you know, I'm sorry. That slogan is not persuasive. That slogan doesn't really say anything. What does that mean? Let's be one Russian people. Okay, well, fine. We can be one people, but how are you going to solve the problem of me not having a job? How are you going to solve the problem of me having no education, of no access to health care? See, the Reds had solutions. They may have been bullshit solutions, they may have been lies, but they at least had something to offer, at least a scheme of societal management that however deluded and however false it was, it at least was something. So the lesson here is if you're going to stand in opposition to an idea, you better have your own ideas. It's not enough just to stand in opposition to someone else. Hillary Clinton learned this to her detriment in her campaign against Donald Trump, it's not just enough to say I'm against something. You have to state what you're for. What do you stand for? What do you believe in? What do you want? And the problem is that the whites throughout the Civil War were never able to enunciate anything like this. And they really should have been able to do this. They could have rallied Russian nationalism. They could have rallied the church. They could have rallied the forces of traditional uh, nationalism against this alien-imposed, evil uh, Bolshevik regime. And it truly was evil. If you look at just the, the liquidations that took place, the, the, the absolute amoral character of the Soviet communist regime, uh, there was just, you know, it, it should have been maybe not a slam dunk, but there should have been some persuasive case made against why communism was bad. 
And again, I think that the whites were never able to enunciate this. They were able, uh, the Reds were always able to portray the whites in their propaganda as foreign stooges. They were able to able to be portrayed as uh, foreign agents, you know, because some of the Western nations intervened in the Civil War uh, against the Bolsheviks. Uh, the Bolsheviks were able to say that, oh, the whites, they're just stooges of Britain or they're stooges of the United States or, or uh, Britain or, or Germany or France or whatever. So the, these types of problems were never adequate, adequately addressed because they really weren't problems of military strategy. Again, the Bolshevik armies were really not... There's been a lot, you know, there's a lot of propaganda, I think, that I, is out there that says, oh, uh, 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 Leon Trotsky was such a great military organizer and he single-handedly built the Red Army from nothing. And he did this and he did that. Well... You know, according to the biographer here, this um, Mr. Kotkin, the biography of Stalin, he paints a, a, a slightly different picture. Uh, Trotsky certainly was a man of ability. He certainly had a, a supreme organizational ability. But in many ways, his role in the Civil War seems to have been overestimated. There were many other subsidiary figures, among them, surprisingly, Stalin, uh, who were able to get things done. Stalin was a head a head crusher. He was a he could exert pressure. He was willing to use force where it was necessary. He was willing to essentially uh, execute as many people as needed to be executed in order to get things done. And in many ways Lenin appreciated this and found this to be an admirable quality. Um, who could have who really could have understood that in the 20s that this is the type of man who would grow into the monster that he would become in the 1930s and, and 40s and, and uh, beyond. But this is what happens when you have evil regimes that take power in countries. So these are the reasons then. These are the reasons why the whites lost the Civil War and why the Reds won it. To recap again, the whites, uh, the Reds had a geographic advantage in being centrally concentrated and located in junctions and population centers. They had only to hang on while the whites had to conquer. Number two, the population of the Red areas were able to uh, stand by the revolutionary regime of the Bolsheviks. Number three, the white Russian armies were on the periphery of the Red areas and were never able to mount an effective challenge militarily. Uh, number four, the whites had a complete lack of understanding of the situation. They they had inept social home front calculations. They conducted themselves as if nothing had happened in the past 20 years. And they lost the minds of the urban workers and the peasants. And finally, propaganda. They never captured the minds and the hearts of the Russian people in the way that the Bolsheviks did. And I think these are the reasons why the Reds won the Civil War. Now, what does this mean for the modern world? Well, I think it means a lot. You know, according to estimates, apparently, you know, millions of people, mostly civilians, died during the Civil War. There was forced starvation. There were executions. There was carnage on a, on a catastrophic scale. And it shows, more than anything else, that ruthless determined, brutal minorities can seize power in a modern state and impose a revolutionary program. It can happen. 
And let's face it, if it had not been for outside intervention, it's quite possible that ISIS or the Islamic State may have been able to take power, at least in Iraq, and may have been able to impose its will there. Maybe, maybe not. We don't know. But it sure looks like they came pretty damn close. And they certainly had the same fanaticism, if not more, than the Bolsheviks in Russia in the early 20th century. The same revolutionary fervor inspired them as inspired the Bolsheviks. So we should not poo-poo these types of uh, these types of issues. These types of conflicts need to be studied closely for what kind of lessons can be learned. And I think studying them helps us understand the psychology of the modern Russian state more than anything else. States are products of their history and their geography. So it's something to think about. And with that, I will sign off here. This podcast was brought to you courtesy of Fortress of the Mind Productions. I'm Quintus Curtius. Good night.